0: Hello, and welcome to Tuesdays at APA Chicago, our monthly after-hours lecture series held at APA's Burnham Conference Center. My name is David Morley. I'm a senior research associate at APA and host of Tuesdays at APA Chicago. Information on previous and future presentations is available on APA's website, www.planning.org, under the section called Events. Selected past programs are also available as podcasts and you can see the APA website for additional details. Tonight we have with us Pete Pointner. Pete is an independent consultant committed to the creation of sustainable communities which are in harmony with the human, natural, and man-made environments of which they are a part. In 2002 he was elected to the College of Fellows of the American Institute of Certified Planners. The cumulative impact of planning decisions in regions across the country will determine the degree to which the built environment will satisfy the broad objectives of meeting human needs efficiently, creating economically viable and sustainable communities, shaping the built environment in harmony with the landscape and the natural and cultural environments that frame the context of a specific project or area, and nourishing the human spirit by creating beauty, diversity, order, justice, and opportunity. Pete is here tonight to present seven key principles to guide the future of planning practice focusing on the important role that planners play in supporting people, the environment, and our economic well-being. Please join me in welcoming Pete Pointner.
1: Good evening everyone, thank you very much for coming out and uh, I really appreciate your being here. Um, I would like to say something tonight that you will remember and value, but this is a very humbling challenge. How many times have you heard a rabbi or a priest or a pastor give a sermon and remembered the specifics of what they said? Now that's humbling. But in the aggregate, what they said became part of your thinking and feeling and part of what you are. It's like having dinner with your grandparents or your parents. You've had all of those wonderful experiences, conversations, disagreements, and yet How many of the specific menus do you remember? Not many, I guess. So it is a humbling experience, but I hope to leave you with a few thoughts that will be useful and hopefully uh, a nudge to do things uh, good. If you remember one thing today, I hope it's the Christopher motto, better to light one candle than to curse the darkness. The degree to which we each make a difference is important. The long-term and aggregate influence of thoughtful, honest, caring, and intelligent actions by many individuals is monumental. Unbelievable what can be accomplished. For planners who influence decisions on land use and infrastructure, your actions are of particular importance in influencing the quality of our human communities. How are we preparing young planners for this important work? I believe that planning education today tends to emphasize techniques like statistical analysis or technology such as GIS or theory such as the research we see in scholarly publications. And while all of these are good and useful and necessary, they are often substitutes for what I believe are even more important focus for planning education. And they're essentially three things. What is the purpose? The values of planning. The long-term considerations of what is important in balancing trade-offs among alternatives. Secondly, the process. They, they, They seem to be weak to me in teaching process, which is the effective application of an interdisciplinary approach to solving technical problems. And secondly, the importance of two-way communication with stakeholders in a meaningful way. Too often public participation is nothing but public relations. You're trying to sell a given product instead of establishing two-way communication, finding out what the real issues are and responding to them in your technical proposals. And third, principles for achieving social, economic, and environmental sustainability applied sensitively and wisely within the specific context of a particular place at a particular scale with a specific history, environment, and culture of that place. This takes an application that involves understanding and sensitivity. Just a brief introduction to myself. I've attempted to present the conclusions I've reached in 50 years of practical planning experience. I'm a practical planner. I'm not a theorist, although I think I know all the basic theories. I'm an applied planner. Uh, I have a book, Planning Connections, Human, Natural, and Man-made, and a blog, Readings in Urban Planning and Design. The readings are a resource that expands upon and complements the chapters of my book and contains 37 papers, uh, 34 of which have been published, and four uh, and thir- and 136 color images. This compendium is a component of a proposed study plan for a college-level course. And in that blog, I have 72 questions that I challenge everyone who says they're a planner to know the answer to. And I think most people who've been in planning will know the answer, but the answers are in my book. Both are available through my blog site, Uh, which is shown here on the slide. On the notes for this PowerPoint, which will be available to all of you, um, there are, with each of the seven principles in paran and in small lettering, the titles of specific papers available on this free PDF download that will give you more detailed information and more technical input, more explanation. Just a brief note on my experience. I, I, I taught planning and design at the university level for seven years full-time and three years part-time. I was a vice president of a big international consulting firm, was there 13 years and a department head, worked in four foreign countries, uh, a lot of work in the Middle East and, and in Canada, and uh, 25 states. And then I started my own firm. Uh, we, when I sold my firm to my ecologist partner, we had 19 professionals. I've worked on site plans that have won awards and some major public works projects such as the Glenwood Canyon, Colorado section of I-70 and the river redevelopment plan for downtown Providence, Rhode Island. All of those are uh, covered in some of these readings. The first thing I want to say is that there is a unique role for urban planners. And by urban, I mean those people who plan the land use and the infrastructure uh, for human communities. And, of course, that involves considerations of open space and of of all of the specialties. And we need all of the specialists, whether you're involved in energy or solid waste or disaster recovery. We need people with in-depth knowledge of those specific areas. But the urban planner's unique role is his focus on land use and infrastructure. And secondly is, is the breadth of considerations. A planner needs to have a broad balance sheet. Uh, when I worked with the engineering, it was primarily engineering firm, the Catherine Company, and I became head of their planning and environmental department. It was interesting for a planner to work with hundreds of engineers because they have a very different approach to this planning and design. And so the planner needs to consider a broad balance sheet in developing plans, in weighing all of the relevant factors for social, economic, and environmental sustainability, and not just geometric efficiency. Third, we have to to weigh the long-term as well as the short-term consequences – you know, we look at marriages now lasting an average of, what, a few years. you got mortgages that last, now they're down to 10, 12 years. you got car payments that are three to five years. And the next election is anywhere from two to four years or maybe a few months. And, and these things constrain the distance within which we try to evaluate the consequences of our actions. And a planner, above all, has in mind, should have in mind, the public interest. My father once said that the only constant in life is change. And uh, after more than 75 years, I found that to be true. No matter how much you want to hold on to the way things are, they always change. The Chicago Metropolitan Agency for Planning projects an increase of 1.96 million people and 1.24 million jobs in northeastern Illinois region by the year 2030. Now, let's just try to get a handle on what that means in terms of what we're planning. To illustrate the implications of the CMAP projections, let's consider McHenry County. From 2000 to 2005, McHenry County was the fifth fastest growing county in Illinois, and it increased by 43,928 persons. Now, that's only one 446th of the CMAP projections for the region. So you have to multiply what I'm about to tell you by 446 to get some feeling. And you know, 2030, for most of you, is not that far away, but the planners have to look long-term and those are the projections. <coughs> Let's look at some of the implications of growth. Based upon metrics from CMAP and from other regional sources, the land area required would be 10,500 acres. In my paper, I've broken down how that would be distributed for various land uses. At two dwelling units per acre, we're going to have to build and plan for 15,562. This is one, you know, one 446th of the regional impact. The residential units alone at, at 10 vehicle trips per dwelling unit per day will produce 155,600 tons or uh, uh, 156,600 vehicle miles of travel daily so that has a huge implication for how you arrange the land uses and for the transportation systems to serve those land uses there will be 30,000 tons of solid waste how would you like to inspect those, Richard? You know, 30,000 tons. And that's just from the residential. And 30, uh, and, and the 1.1 billion gallons of water, and this doesn't include industrial and commercial uses, and there would be 1.5 billion gallons of stormwater runoff from the residential lawns only, assuming the development patterns that have been established and the metrics as seen by CMAP. Uh, this is one of the few that uh, slides that that I will uh, uh, read. Um, this is the power of plans and ordinances and it's the I, I keep emphasizing the cumulative effect of planning decisions throughout the entire region will determine the degree and that's an important word the degree to which the built environment will satisfy the broad objectives which David read to you and which are in the the uh, handout. No single raindrop ever sees itself as part of the flood, said uh, Cahil Gabren. Just as the accumulation of small raindrops can create tremendous negative impacts of flooding, the impact of many principled based planning decisions can have an enormous positive impact on people, the environment, and our economic well-being. So what I'm saying is, if we could all do 5% more, 5% more creative, 5% more initiative, the impact would be tremendous if we could get this out to all of those involved in planning decisions. Make a difference. In, La- in Illinois, you all know that the land use is determined by local government units. And this is where the rubber hits the road. And this is where planners, no matter what your specialty, can have a significant impact. Okay, I'm going to try to focus on what I call seven principles. That when I talk about applying principles, there are many ways to apply these principles. Uh, This is a view from Joe Davies County, where I've done quite a bit of work out there. And on the left is really a rural landscape. One of my papers is preserving rural landscapes. And on the right-hand side, you see some of the consequences of of the mix between agriculture and urban uses, between the movement of farm materials and farm equipment. And, and of course, there are other impacts. Um, Comprehensive plans at the county level or regional level should identify agricultural preservation areas that allow a variety of compatible uses, orchards, stables, horseback, uh, exterior recreation, that preserve the integrity of the prime farmland. Secondly, plans should provide room for residential growth at sewerable densities and adjacent to existing communities rather than scattered leapfrog across the landscape. And third is working at the regional and uh, county level with uh, trust for conservation easements and the transfer of development rights to preserve prime farmland and open space. It's critical to prevent sprawl. The picture on the left is what I call popcorn development the kind where people's recreation is recreational mowing, or they pay somebody to do it. And, of course, you're using a lot of uh, air-polluting equipment. You're using fertilizers and pesticides, and it has the same kind of impact that uh, bad agricultural practices have, uh, which, for instance, during this past summer created an algae bloom that spread from Toledo, Ohio, north into the southern shore of Ontario and killed off millions of dollars of sport fishing, recreational activities because of that one bloom. And it's attributable to inadequately treated municipal sewage, but the biggest contributor is runoff, is the runoff. Secondly, discourage urban sprawl that is leapfrog. And the illustration on the right is a subdivision with sewerable densities, but it is a leapfrog out into the country, into the prime ag land, with no efficient relationship to existing communities or community services. There are appropriate places for low-density residential. I was a consulting village planner for Kildare, Illinois, for 23 years, and I saw them grow from about 600 people to almost 6,000 people. When they started out, they... Revolted as a bunch of rural people against a developer's plan for quarter acre lots spread over the landscape. And they were able to incorporate the new t- village of Kildare. When they did that, the area encompassed was rolling, wooded, and there was no municipal services available. So it made sense then to have one to five acre lots. You could locate a structure to preserve the trees, which was a high value to the people of Killdeer. And you could get the proper location in terms of grading and everything else. So it made sense then. But while I was village planner, they quickly outran the rolling wooded hillsides and new subdivisions were being proposed on flat farmland. And by this time, the county, Lake County, had a municipal sewer system that was available to Killdeer. And so things changed and they were still bent on having one acre lots minimum, period. But what they found was on the first subdivision that came in that there was no provision for open space, there was no preservation of the few trees that were along the perimeter, there were no recreational facilities, you had rooftops and streets. That's all you had. And they were not really happy with what they had. And so we developed a planned unit development ordinance. And this took a lot of convincing. You could have a lot as small as a half an acre. Now, I got a lot that's about 7,500 square feet in the city of Wheaton, and so half an acre is still a large lot to me. But the only way you could get the half acre lot is if 50% of the development was in permanent open space. And the developer had to dedicate a a right-of-way and a portion of the site that was identified in an overall plan for a green space network within which they would develop pathways and bikeways so there would be an interconnecting greenbelt system. They bought it and many of the subdivisions like the one you see here, very large, very expensive homes built around the retention ponds but a great deal of care taken with those developments and All of them had some improved recreational facilities, which were a function of our planned unit development ordinance. Here's another example of how comprehensive plans can achieve some of these uh, uh, principles. Um, And the second principle, then, is make and adopt and implement comprehensive plans that are based on the principles of sustainability. Uh, The village of Forsyth in central Illinois... uh, accepted as a concept in their comprehensive plan a green belt. And the green belt followed tree lines, surface water courses, and it connected the parks and the major activity areas in the city and left plenty of room for growth within the green belt. And there wasn't a don't go beyond the green belt philosophy, but it's fill in the green belt area first. You know, we talked about a scout leader, boy Scout or Girl Scout, being able to take their troop and go on a hike for 12-15 miles or half or a portion of that and go from recreational area to park to a community park to a campground without ever being more than a mile or two from the heart of the village. Somebody gets sick, one of the uh, leaders has a heart attack, boom, you've got services very in close proximity. But the width of this We established the width based upon technical studies at the time that was sufficient to maintain a a variety of plant materials from the edge materials to canopy trees and that would provide a variety of habitat for birds and for for mammals and for wildlife. So it wasn't an arbitrary thing. And so when a developer came in and they had a subdivision that uh, incorporated a portion of this plan their obligation under the land cash donation provisions of the subdivision ordinance were to provide that particular public right-of-way for that green space. And this is many years ago. Uh, I haven't seen how much they've got done, but within two three years they had acquired a major portion of this green belt. Another example make and adopt and implement these plans. This is in Peoria County. The plan identified prime farmland for preservation and limited the uses to what I said earlier, compatible uses in an agricultural area. The benefit is the county board still had a dominant political influence by the agricultural community. And they wanted to preserve that heritage and that prime farmland. They thought long term. If you take a look at the entire globe of the world, there are only a few regions that have the soil and that have the climate that is conducive to productive agriculture. And this area had the climate and the soils, uh, and they wanted to preserve that. So that was identified for preservation. And the plan then uh, focused growth adjacent to existing communities. So once the county plan was done, and there was a general concept of focusing new development, not along the arterial roadways in the county, but focusing it in areas adjacent to existing communities, when they did that, we then had meetings with each of these rural communities. And we took a look at the specifics of topography, their utility systems, and we came up with a concurrency plan so that development would occur concurrent with the extension of utilities in the most efficient manner. So you would use gravity sewers instead of lift stations. At some point in time, you do need lift stations, but the whole idea was to have a rational plan that the developers could understand, the local officials could understand, and they could buy into it. Homer Glen is another example. Uh, Homer Glen was the uh, state's largest newly incorporated municipality when it came into a municipal context. Uh, About 23,000 people. It's south along I 355. Um, Homer Glen, it was interesting. One reason I got involved was because of CMAP, actually, Nipsey's predecessor. Uh, they, the, one of the board members had called CMAP at the time, Nipsey, and said, we are looking for an environmentally-based planner. Who do you suggest? Well, I happened to know some of the people there, and I said, well, try Pete Pointer, and they gave him some other names. So they contacted me, and I said, you know, you're not even incorporated yet, you're working on that. And I said, you know, I've written some papers, I've got some stuff, I'll talk to you until I'm blue in the face but uh, you know, here's what I can do to help. No, no, would you do the comprehensive plan? And I said, you don't want a one-man show. And at the time, I was an independent consultant, and I didn't have my team from the firm that I had established. And, and I said, you need a team. At the same time, I was doing work where Richard Dunn was head of uh, planning in Glen Ellen. And the staff asked me, if I would be the staff representative in the development of a comprehensive plan. And we selected uh, TPAP, Turkle, Pettigrew, Allen, and Payne. And I'd known all those old guys, they're about my age, and we competed and had fun together, and they were good colleagues. And I had a very delightful working experience with the consulting team that was uh, that was under, uh, uh, Jack Pettigrew was dead, and Nick Turkle was dead, uh, Alan had moved to, to uh, Michigan, had his own little thing going, and so the the remaining partner was just a wonderful guy. He wrote the proposal, he was hands-on, and we got along very well. About that time, Homer Glenn comes out and they say, you know, we have a request for proposals from consultants. And so uh, Tom Payne asked me, he was the representative, Tom asked me if I would join them. I had some history with them, and I knew some of the people, and long story short, we got the job. But what is unique about the plan, they had what they called core values. And the core values were related to preservation of the natural environment. And because there was a lot of open land, they were being hit by developers who wanted to put in ticky-tacky subdivisions everywhere and townhomes, regardless of whether it was near appropriate locational factors or not. And so by having these core values, it influenced every aspect of the comprehensive plan. The data gathering, you suddenly now had to have more information on the wetlands, and the floodways, and the the woodlots, and the tree lines, and all of the natural features. Then in developing the alternatives, you had to consider not only the location of a piece of land with reference to utilities and to the transportation system, but its relationship to those natural resources. And then you had to develop alternatives and adopt them that incorporated policies so that each development would contribute to this open space system and the preservation of the natural resources. So I I think what really distinguished Homer Glenn was the board and the people were committed to these core values. Principle number three, integrate green infrastructure into the regional and local plans. I served, I had the pleasure of serving on a subcommittee of APA on green infrastructure, and I learned as much as I contributed, in fact, probably more. I did write a paper that was reviewed by APA that was published in one of the division newsletters. It's referenced in the notes. But green infrastructure, uh, here is the definition from that paper. Uh, Frequently planners see green infrastructure as best management practices for stormwater. They use swales instead of pipes. But it's much more than that. So listen to this definition. And again, this was approved, and this relates to the the subcommittee's work. Green infrastructure is all of the elements of the natural environment that influence and support human communities, urban, suburban, and rural. These elements include wetlands, surface and groundwater, forest and native landscapes, urban streetscapes, parks and open space. So, green infrastructure can be a powerful tool and principle that can influence your plans. When you integrate green infrastructure into a plan, you save unique landscapes, wildlife habitat, you preserve ecosystem integrity, and this requires base information on resources and land ownership patterns. Secondly, you preserve woodlots existing tree lines, and fence rows. There is a role of the plan unit development process to achieve these objectives. And you create green corridors that provide continuity of open space and wildlife habitat and with a subdivision ordinance and land cash donations as an implementation tool. And last, you design wetlands, as you see here, and stormwater detention And retention areas for ecological, recreational, educational, and scenic values, as well as stormwater management. You know, I see too many retention ponds that look like polluted bathtubs for polluted water. They're ugly. They have no recreational value, no scenic value. They're really a liability in the landscape. And green infrastructure can relate to buildings and structures which can incorporate landscaping. This is a bridge in Florida and a parking garage in Georgia. Okay, principle number four, revitalize historic downtowns and preserve and interpret cultural resources. I found this interesting because in Wheaton, which is on the left, all of this was preserved without any ordinance and without any design review. And they essentially restored the facade of these commercial buildings. On the right-hand side, this is downtown Alexandria, Virginia. They, ha- they are heavy on ordinances and on design review. But they tried to achieve the same thing. And through the efforts of local, dedicated professionals and citizens they were able to achieve uh, the the downtown preservation. There are cultural areas and cultural resources that should also um, be protected. Uh, Here are two examples. The one on the left is the historic Pullman District on the far south side of Chicago. Uh, I lived there from 1967 to 1972 and I was chairman of the First Preservation Committee. And I've been involved from a distance, even though I've owned property down there until a few years ago. I've been involved with the foundation that was established ever since then. It is now uh, proposed to become a national park. But it started out, it was to be torn down, this is by planners in the 50s, torn down and made into a modern industrial park. Now it's adjacent to the Sherwin-Williams Paint Factory, which was active at the time. There are about 1,400 of the original historic dwelling units and many of the public buildings. And so our first step was to work with the city of Chicago to change their mind on the plan. It was not hard for two reasons. They'd run out of urban renewal money from the 50s, and we had a very sympathetic chief planner, Eric Yondorf. Some of you older folks may know Eric. Super guy. So he and the city, in their 1968 or 69, when they did the sub-area plans for Chicago, they used the words and the graphics supplied by our preservation committee and institutionalized that we wanted to be a historic neighborhood with the emphasis on neighborhood as well as historic. The second step was to get it put on the National Register. I had the honor of being on the National AIA Historic Resource Committee at the time, and I happened to know the keeper of the National Register. And they had just democratized the National Register. So they would allow sites, structures, and objects that were of local significance onto the National Register, even if they were only of local or regional significance. So we got that easy one taken care of. Of course, you have to fill out all the paperwork, ta-da-da-da-da-da. The next step... We became a state historic district at the same time that Galena was made a state historic district. And then the next step was to become a national historic landmark. And that took some doing, and we got that accomplished. The last step was asking the city to simply acknowledge what the citizens had lived for five years, what the citizens had embraced for five years because of a citizen-led educational program to preserve the historic architecture as a way of enhancing your neighborhood and the quality of life in the neighborhood. They had a public hearing at the Greenstone Church with 600 people, and in two and a half hours, there wasn't one person spoke against city landmark status. And then the city council was so impressed, they held a second public hearing so they could attend it and take credit, which was good. They really did help. They really did. But Pullman is an example of an entire district that has been preserved, Uh, In contrast to Gary, Indiana, there was a Purdue graduate student who just did a master's thesis. When I read it, I said, you really should get a Ph.D. for this. It was marvelous, marvelous writing. And he compared the history of Pullman from 1880 to the history of Gary, Indiana from 1880. And as any of you, all of you know about the region, there's a big difference between Gary and historic Pullman. But his, uh, uh, Sheflin uh, Davis's uh, master's thesis is marvelous. On the other side is downtown Naperville. They took an aggressive approach to redeveloping their downtown and expanding the area for retail. And in doing it, they adopted design guidelines that tried to incorporate some of the typical characteristics of turn-of-the-century br- uh, brick commercial architecture. Um, they maintain and adaptively reuse many of the buildings, but at least there was an attempt to do something that tied in with the authentic history and context of that area. Uh, now one of my favorite topics the functional classification system and a multimodal transportation plan. big words. Um, if you look on the left, you see a skeleton. And if this skeleton had all of the bones, you'd see there are some major bones and some minor bones. And that's because they reflect the law of nature. And the amount of effort and energy and leverage and weight-carrying capacity and movement capacity, they're all in response to rational, functional criteria. And that really is the basis of a functional classification system of roadways. And, (coughs) pardon me. I have two examples uh, of the functional classification system, but essentially it establishes a system related to the land uses that are served, the character of the traffic and other transportation modes, and uh, such as public transportation, pedestrian, and vehicular. So there has to be a context sensitivity in the design in addition to the dimensions of the roadway and the right-of-way. Secondly, I have a real concern. Um, I really love some of the, as an architect planner, some of the principles and projects uh, of the new urbanism. And I have a paper that was written following um, uh, the Upper Midwest Planning Conference two years ago. It's called To Grid or Not to Grid. And the new urbanists oftentimes uh, promote Uh, the connectivity that results in an urban area from a grid system. And there are certain benefits, and I acknowledge those. And so at this conference, our speaker was the head of New Urbanism, and he is the past mayor of Milwaukee, and I deeply respect this guy. He has really accomplished a lot of good for planning. But one of the things he said was, I'm trying to get planners to throw out the functional classification system and adopt the grid system in their smart growth policies and so on. So, when he's finished, there's about 400 of us. He says, Does anyone have any comments or objections to anything I said? Silence. So, I raised my hand and I said, I agree with you, the problems with the application by engineers of the functional classification system, superimposed on land uses without any relationship to something other than capacity and safety. So I I appreciate your criticisms, but it has a lot of extremely valuable uses in planning. And at that point in time, um, that's all part of one of the papers I had. I started to call it the nitty-gritty, but I thought that wasn't quite professional enough. But if you go online, and it, it's only six 800 words. But I try to spell out the pros and cons of both uh, items. The grid system, some people don't know, actually originated in 1785. And the federal government adopted a system of survey so a real estate speculator could sell a piece of land on the side of a mountain in Colorado and describe it legally without him or her or their potential buyer ever seeing the property. So it really facilitated growth and land transfer. And secondly, it established standards, uh, one, the derivative of which are things like the grid system. And it was applied in 29 states at that point in time, 1785, and Alaska, which wasn't a state at the time. Now, this is where we get our 330 by 660 blocks in Chicago, five acres. This is where we get the width of -of right-of-way for streets and subdivisions and many subdivision ordinances. It's archaic in many, many ways. For instance, on the left-hand side, this is a subdivision I was teaching down in Texas at Texas Tech. And this is a picture from the 60s. But the point is well made. Look at the pavement to serve single-family residential uses. A more contemporary application is this small lot subdivision in Bloomingdale. Uh, Our firm was the consulting village planner when they grew from about 6,000 to 26,000, you know, from 1985 to about 1995. And uh, the, the project on the left was by Pulte, and they came in with a very traditional subdivision layout, and we worked with them. Uh, because they had, uh, we thought, as staff, uh, a good plan architecturally and in terms of maintenance and homeowners association of building these small lot single-family units that had all exterior maintenance consistently applied by the association with many specific rules, and built them around retention ponds. So the front was on a narrow street. There were some islands like that in the backside looked out on a, the open space of a retention pond. Another example on the uh, left-hand side is an arterial road in Peoria County where we had worked. And by the way, after we did the comprehensive plan, they asked, and then we worked with the individual communities, they had us come back and uh, amend their zoning ordinance and their subdivision ordinance to reflect the policies in the plan. And that's an essential element. It's not just enough to have good ideas, but you've got to have the teeth to enforce them. And you have to have the background so that you can reflect those in plan review. On the right-hand side is another arterial in Sanibel Island in Florida. And this is an example where they have really thought multimodal. They have a green space that separates the bikeway. They have transit stops periodically so the buses can pull out of the flow of traffic. Because let's face it, Roadway has two functions. One is property service, and the other one is movement of traffic, and they conflict. So when you have an arterial, you want to minimize the access points, and you want to give preference to the flow and safe movement of traffic, and then when you get down to your collectors and your residential streets, you have to be much more sensitive to the context of the adjacent land uses and so on. Principle number six, this is the second last one, shape quality development. As noted in principle two about plans, there's a key role for good plans, policies and ordinances. And the project review process and the interdisciplinary approach to planning is critical. Zoning's another key tool which establishes the specifics of such factors as type and intensity of development and the bulk regulations such as building setbacks and separation. And third, the subdivision ordinance can set standards for grading, for tree preservation, land cash donations, stormwater management, and standards for street right-of-way and landscaping. So there are many tools available to achieve these principles. (laughs) You can see these two disasters that I have as an example. Manchester Lakes on the left is a case study in the book. Basically, we had a very good client who represented a major developer. And the, and the developer was buying some of the client's land in Algonquin. And they came up with a plan that satisfied all the specifics of the zoning ordinance. Setbacks, lot size, separation, everything. And it met the builder's program. And like my, the owner said to me, their representative, it went to the city council and it hit a train. And that's because the team didn't look at the city's comprehensive plan. They wanted a rural character along the perimeter. They wanted access points at specific locations. They wanted connections to certain parks. None of that was included. So we did a cluster subdivision design where we had smaller lots than were normally permitted under the direct application of the zoning ordinance. And it was all built around lakes. End result is... We, now ha- we soon had two of the council persons living there. It sailed through. Uh, it's won a Crystal Key Award and a Silver Key Award from uh, National Association of Home Builders. Another older example, some of you know, is Oak Creek Courts, one of my favorite developments. I had nothing to do with it other than slobber over it and say, Boy, that is really neat. But it's off, up off Half Day Road uh, near Lincolnshire. And the last point under shaping quality development. And this is the title of one of my papers, Stop Aggressively Ugly Strip Commercial. You all know about that. And then the right side is an example that we shaped in Bloomingdale, which is a five-acre site. The Urban Land Institute says you shouldn't call it a center if it's less than about five acres because you don't have enough tenants to have professional management. Ta-da-da-da-da-da. This is accessible by pedestrian ways to adjacent residential it has limited access points, it has the setbacks and landscaping, and it's been a very economically successful neighborhood-scale retail service center. And you can, you can do th- lots with utilitarian elements. You know, a typical engineering solution is a concrete embutment like on the left. On the right-hand side is another example from Manchester Lakes where you can take utilitarian elements and make them attractive. Uh, The last example on this principle is Elk Grove Village. Um, And if some of you have any questions, we can uh, get into that. But they employed the team that I was heading to do a comprehensive redevelopment plan for an old industrial commercial area that had 80,000 employees. It was the hen that laid the golden egg to keep the, the village going. When they were finished, I got a call from the economic development director and she said, would you like to do a plan for a residential neighborhoods? Everyone's so happy with what's going on in the industrial area. I said, well, what's the problem? Do you have overcrowding in housing? No. Do you have bad infrastructure? No. Do you have flooding problems? No. Do you have uh, structural obsolescence? No. Well, what's the problem? The problem is it can be better. And we want you guys to figure out what to do. There's a residential street on the left that's one of the areas. Um, Time is running out, and so I am not going to go into this. But this is one of the developments that I am um, most happy with. And the public amenities of this project have been built. This is in Woodstock. And um, it it was approved by the village just as the housing recession began in 2008. And so the community park... And some of the amenity package was already developed, and uh, the, the the implementation of the details has not uh, taken place yet. Uh, it's purchased by a new developer. Um, one of the papers that you can get down on downline uh, on download online uh, from my blog site gives you the details of this project. Last and quickly, we need to teach an environmental ethic and stewardship of our planet. To impact this change, we must develop a constituency, educate the public to what is at stake, and encourage them by positive plans and actions. First of all, individuals can do a lot with rain gardens and with native plants for lawns, uh, hybrid cars, and remembering the three R's, the famous three R's, reduce and reuse and recycle. And businesses can also follow those things. So households and businesses can all do things to reduce their vehicle miles of travel, reduce the stormwater runoff, and to make their site more environmentally compatible. So in summary, planners have a unique role, an important role, in shaping the future of the region. Secondly, the power to shape growth and change resides at the local government level. Developers and private investors play an important role in how they approach development. The degree to which our decisions create more sustainable communities is vitally important, and each of us can make a difference. Better to light one candle than curse the darkness. And My my last point is whether you're working for a governmental unit or whether you're working for a developer, you can make a difference. You can influence the ordinances, the development review process, all of the elements I've talked about. You're not going to change the world in a day, but you can make a huge change in the local development decisions. And I'm just closing with this thought from Tom Brokaw. It will do us a little good to wire the world if we short-circuit our souls. There is no delete button for racism, poverty, or secretarian violence. And no keystroke can ever clean the air, save a river, or preserve a forest. So with that, I'd like to take any questions, if anyone has any questions.
0: Let's have a round of applause for Pete Pointer. Thank you. And just as a reminder, as we open this up to Q&A, just put your hands up, and I'll come to you with this microphone so that we can record your question for our podcast.
2: Pete, thanks for the presentation. Appreciate that. But uh, my question is something I don't believe you addressed, and that is uh, for some folks and some communities it's still difficult financial times. Um, how can some of the uh, principles or ideals or goals you've sort of identified here be uh, implemented when it seems like some developers come to a municipality and they say, We'll build something for you, but you have to subsidize us either with the TIF program or uh, some other way. Like you have to—it's downtown project, let's say. Maybe you have to um, uh, give us right away, give us your parking lot, and then you have to uh, pay for any parking spaces that would be used by the public. In addition to that, that would replace those. I'm talking way too much. The question would be: There are financial incentives that uh, some developers are still seeking. And I think they may cut into some of the principles that you've identified here. You, do you understand my question?
1: Two responses to that. First of all, we may be coming out of an economic recession and development is increasing the activity and employment and cash flow and public funding and so on. So, but for the last, since 2008, things have been really tight, especially at the municipal level. And it literally cut out development. I mean, I know engineering firms that have lost 90% of their staff and landscape architectural firms because there wasn't work. So my first comment is that municipalities have to seek good development. Another one of my papers. And I explain what I mean by good development, that it pays its way and that it is compatible with the comprehensive plan, To da 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 so the first thing you have to do is to find ways to attract good development. And a lot of that is in the hands of the elected officials. Uh, the, the biggest promoter of development in Bloomingdale was Mayor Sam Tenuto. And he said, I don't care what our ordinance say, we want good stuff, and I'm going to make sure our consultants enforce it. So you, you, have to, you have to recruit good developers, number one. You have to be clear about what it is, that you expect from them and it has to be codified and proven. Uh, I know communities that I've worked in that have a reputation of being outrageous in their demands and and good developers won't go near them because of the reputation and I've worked for developers and I've had my clients sometimes pull out of a project after the third time they get hit with a contribution that wasn't under any ordinance So, number one, municipalities need to have a review process and documentation that's fair, open, and efficient because time is money with the developer. Secondly, to really get to your question, I think it has to be based upon the details of each specific proposal. This is what I call trade-offs. That's one of the papers I want to write on some of these cases. What were the trade-offs? Because there isn't, in my book, there isn't an absolute answer. You never offer incentives. You always offer incentives. Boom. But you always hold the line on what you believe is important in your ordinances, your review process, your policies, and so on. You have to hold the line. And I've been fortunate enough to have worked with, I worked with 68 municipalities and government units in Illinois, and the majority of them were willing to bite the bullet and demand quality development. So, On the first hand, you have to be prepared for it. You have to track good development. Secondly, when it comes in, you have to evaluate their needs against the public benefit. And that involves social, economic, and environmental trade-offs. So there's no one answer that I know that fits all situations. Let's
0: have one more round of applause for Pete Pointner. (laughs) On behalf of the American Planning Association, I want to thank Pete Pointner for a thought-provoking and informative program on sustainability planning. Thanks also to the many APA staff members who help make this program possible every month. Information on previous and future presentations is available on APA's website, www.planning.org, under the section called Events. I'm David Morley.